Welcome to the State Support Team 11 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Neal, and today we are joined by Dr. Antoinette Miranda. Antoinette is the interim chair of teaching and learning at The Ohio State University and also represents District 6 on the State Board of Education. Dr. Miranda, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, and it's really nice to be back to talk with you, Eric. Yes, you as well. Uh, we really enjoyed our first conversation back there. It was, uh, I want to say, early 21, late 20. Yes. I can't remember. Things have been a blur. But uh, that was really well received and a really critical timing to talk about cultural competency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last time we did discuss cultural competency, and we thought it would be great to have you back and talk about culturally responsive practices but more specifically about how to have these difficult conversations around race and culture. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's been many uh, high profile issues, unfortunately, uh, around social justice that have been in the news since the last time that we talked, and even some right here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about them with students, it can often be a challenge for educators. Do you feel like it's important to have these conversations with students? You know, Eric, I I think um, it's always been really important, but even more so now. Um, People have kind of wondered why all of a sudden we have really sort of embraced uh, social justice. And I think in part because we are home more. We get to see what's happening out there. And people have really uh, started to realize the inequities that exist. And I think if we don't think students realize this, they do. They see TV. They have their friends. Many of them are aware of it, and many of them are very curious about having conversations about it. One of the things we recognize is that some kids are having these conversations in their home. So they're able to participate because they have these um, deep conversations, but we also know that some kids don't. I think the most critical thing is that teachers have to have a comfort level, and students will sort of sense if the teacher doesn't have that comfort level. And so one of the things I would suggest is that Um, educators within their group, within their school, are developing little um, pods of talking, are able to share, like, how do we approach this? What are the kind of things you say? How can I be comfortable with this? I think it's a mistake to brush it under the rug. Um, There is an awareness. One of the things we have in our country is that we are afraid to talk about race. It's almost like race is a taboo subject. Yet, Race permeates, whether we want to believe it or not, permeates almost everything we do. And so I do think um, teachers need to have those conversations. And part of that, I do think, is culturally responsive practice that we're engaging in. Um, And it can be connected to a subject you're talking about, but it also can be where students just ask a question. You say, let's have a dialogue. You don't have to participate in the discussion, but I think some students are very curious about what is happening. And it doesn't mean the teacher has to give her experience, but she can facilitate where there is a dialogue that's uh, that's occurring. One of the things that we don't do very well in this country is have dialogue. We wanna shut it down because we're so afraid of what I don't know, because the reality is there is systemic racism in the United States. We do have a racial issue in the United States. And the only way we're gonna overcome it is to be able to talk about it. So when I think about um, doing these things, I think that it's really important for teachers initially to take inventory of their own biases, to kind of think about where do I stand on this? Can I lead a conversation 
that allows students to be able to dialogue and have their own perspective. Um, one of the ways we can start to do this is to integrate race and culture into the curriculum. And I'm not advocating one way, but we can talk about these things. These are realities in terms of looking at the United States. We are not a homogeneous nation. We are a heterogeneous nation with many, many cultures. And to ignore that, um, I think does a disservice to what we are as Americans. Um, so children should be provided a window with diverse experiences, being able to hear their classmates, being able to, and there's a lot of things out there um, that you can utilize. Um, one of the new places, um, it used to be called uh, Teaching Tolerance. Um, and now I love the name much better. And it's called Learning for Justice. I used to kind of be bothered by the tolerance, like, Eric, I'm gonna tolerate you. Right. I'm glad that they now changed it. Um, so I think this uh, website, Learning for Justice, um, has a lot of strategies and ideas that teachers can go to that they can be comfortable. But I think it's great for teachers to have that dialogue with each other so they can look at where do I stand and what do I, what do I know, but other teachers may be able to give strategies for these things. No, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I started off as a history teacher, so I'm a social studies background. And yeah, it, it was I had a lot more background knowledge than my colleagues on a lot of things mm -hmm. just by the nature of my degree. Um, but I also had the opportunity of things just coming up more frequently yes. in class naturally and, and having, you know, those entry points into these conversations that, you know, allow you to kind of, you know, flow in and out of current events connected to and in the context of these things that happened historically. But, you know, there's, there's been that, I mean, you can call it a whitewashing, you can call it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a watering down of, especially when you talk about United States history, you know, yes. we're, we're really quick to talk about, you know, fascism or communism or those things and go into great detail. But, you know, uh, the, the regular textbook, you know, U.S. history is very, you know, from that, that patriotic lens and, you know, we mm -hmm. came here and the natives helped us and it was, you know, it was all kumbaya and all this. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't know that it's it's ever too early from my standpoint from being a historian mm -hmm. to to start just saying, you know, from a fact basis, you know, here here are for, you know, documents, yeah. here are, you know, those, those you know, uh, resources that you can look at and see that in their own words or, you know, a, a witness accounts, the, the things that happened. And I think part of what maybe leads to these decisions or these, these, decisions, these conversations being so complicated now is you don't get the real history. So if you're a student that all, the only story you ever hear about America is, you know, this is what happened. And it's, it's really this, this kind of rose colored, uh, you know, vision mm -hmm. of what things were it's kind of shocking to you all of a sudden to hear yeah. that there is systemic racism or that these things take place. But if you follow just the actual history, it's laid out pretty clearly for you that it was founded this way. Uh, people were exploited, the native people and uh, slaves brought from Africa, indentured servants from poor European countries. There was all sorts of, of this in our DNA from the very beginning. And so I, I think the more we can from a historical standpoint, just be honest about that, that yeah. it maybe would lead to easier conversations down the road. You know, Eric, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think most of the people that talk about 
uh, not wanting another history. There is no other history. It's American history. That's the history. <laughs> that people don't really know the full depth of, of the historical uh, facts and how um, not only African-Americans, but Native Americans, Asian Americans, um, Latino Americans were really oppressed in uh, very harsh ways in the United States. And so we don't get that in our history books. Um, most kids don't know about Jim Crow laws. Um, they don't remember um, that there were some drinking fountains. That is a part of our history. That was up until 1960. So for people to say, oh, that's what our founding fathers, our founding fathers had flaws. Right. Um, they had wonderful ideas about what this country were built on, but the reality is we were very brutal to many segments of the population. And to not um, talk about that makes no sense to me. Why in the world would we not talk about that? Um, so, you know, here's a, another thing that I'm gonna talk about. I, you know, with my students, we were doing some things on Appala Appalachian culture, right? And I found an article back in the 1920s when we had the eugenics movement. And I would bet most people that have an Appalachian background don't understand this, but elite whites put forth um, with the eugenics movement because initially they were looking at why rural folks weren't doing as well in education. And they started focusing on Appalachians. And so they didn't really wanna deal with the poverty thing. So the eugenics movement actually put forth that Appalachians weren't achieving and could not get out of party, poverty, weren't successful in school because they were intellectually inferior. I bet a lot of Appalachians would be shocked to know that elite whites describe them that way. And so when you look at many of the stereotypes that we have, that's where it comes from. And so if anybody is interested in that article, I'll make sure I drop it to you. But those are the realities that people don't understand where some of our stereotypes came from um, and how these ideas were put forth. So when we think of the eugenics movement, oftentimes we think about African-Americans, but what we also know was that Appalachians were lumped into that in terms of how they were viewed and the explanation for why they were not doing, um, they, why they were not more successful in schools. And so, you know, we have to look at what's the, um, what's the purpose um, and yet in, in our code, in the Ohio um, code, it actually says we are supposed to give a balanced history and it has all the groups laid out there. So when people say, oh no, we can't do this, it actually is in our code that when we're teaching, we should be giving a balanced history of African-Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, all of these groups. It doesn't say we're supposed to give one side. It says we're supposed to give a balanced history of all of those groups. And that's really what we're asking teachers to do. Um, teachers should be allowed to teach what they know. The other thing is something you hit on, and I, and I can't remember where I saw it, is that people, history, we don't, teachers are not supposed to teach social studies, and I think you'll agree with this, to develop, to make patriots. Right. Supposed to be teaching, here's the information. We're asking you to become intellectually inquisitive of understanding about our history. That's not the purpose of schooling in America. The purpose is not to make patriots. The purpose is not to have people love or hate our country. It's about 
teaching them, here's what our country is about. Here's what math is about, reading is about, to make your informed decisions. And I think we've missed the boat on the purpose of um, teaching history, for example. Yeah, I, th I think, again, th this is almost in a way um, not an accident, the same way that, you know, these uh, systemic race issues are not an accident. You know, when right. you think about when public education started in America, um, it, it very uh, followed the factory kind of worker, yes. right? So it was like- And the, there was an indoctrination back then. Right, so you weren't- so many immigrants, they wanted them to think one way, but that has changed since. So yeah, go yeah. ahead. You're yeah, so they, they, they didn't necessarily want you to be a deep thinker. They wanted you to sit in rows and follow directions and respond to the bell when it told you to go to lunch and come back when it rang again and do all of those things. I, I think, again, from a history standpoint, we are actually trained in our, our college programs, our licensed programs to teach people critical thinking and how to yeah. compare and contrast things and how to do all of these things. Um, you know, it, it's not been that long since the Common Core State Standards, which the Ohio mm -hmm. State Standards still follow those very, mm -hmm. very closely. But when, when that shift was made from, uh, I, you're going to read this, and then one day in the spring, I want you to remember it and bubble the circle for the thing that you remembered, on to, I want you to read this written from this perspective, and now read this other thing from the opposite perspective, compare and contrast them, and then mm -hmm. come to your own conclusion about what you think using the evidence from the writing, which right. is what we need to be doing, but is not really what's taught outside of, I'd say, social studies and what's uh, been the, the, the status quo for so long. So I think, um, you know, beyond just being, you know, um, you know, having that cultural competency, we, we need yeah. to help to develop these other subject areas yeah. to teach children how to do that, to have critical conversations, mm -hmm. to do all of that stuff. You know, there's a movement called Philosophy for Children that uh, they did a lot of research on that they said actually uh, increases math and reading scores. And even in uh, students of poverty or different um, ethnic groups or, or anything without doing any sort of math or reading stuff, because yeah. it's really teaching you how to think critically, which you can apply to, to anything in your life. And so I, I like that you've, you, you've kind of come out with these, these strategies and these ideas for like, how can we actually support these educators? What are some other things mm -hmm. we can do to, you know, be, beyond at the university level, integrating these things into the, the license programs? But what can we do yeah. for the people who are out there in the field right now? Yeah, because here's the thing when you're talking about uh, talking we know that white people are less exposed to what to do around race and more likely to be socialized to avoid racial matters and see them as dangerous. Kids have a need to process what is going on. And so that's one of the things I've sort of kind of, that sort of puzzles me is like, what is your fear? What is your fear about talking to these, about these issues? Um, and, you know, I've heard the words indoctrination thrown around and victimization thrown around and all of these words. And I think they're catchphrases to put us off, like we're diverting ourselves from the real issue. And the real issue is about understanding how race has impacted us in the United States and how in 2021 it still has an impact. I teach a diversity course. And so I have many of my students and 
And I tell you, my especially my white students that come, even, not just from small towns, but they all say like, why didn't I learn this in history? Why didn't I learn this in social studies? And I basically, you know, put things out and we have discussions about them. And I have what I want them to do is become critical thinkers to sort of explore these first person stories, to explore these historical things. And it, it's ironic that when we went to Zoom and so um, that, you know, I always would give readings, right? And, and, you know, but you always wonder how they really read these things. So we went to Zoom, we had discussion board, which forced them to read these things. And it was fascinating because I had them read things like about Wounded Knee and I had them read, read things about the Jim Crow law and I had them read things about Plessy versus Ferguson and I had them read things about laws about for GL, LGBTQ. So they had to read like these court cases and all of a sudden they were, they had the light bulb went off and they were like, wow, these things happened so long ago, but here I can see today how we're still living with some of these things. I can see today the systemic racism. So, you know, you as a social studies teacher, I think you can understand that when you look at things that were real in the United States, because we have tons of documentation of this, the students in my class become critical race thinkers, um, critical thinkers of race. That's why I want to call them critical thinkers of race, as well as social class, as well as gender, as well as all these other isms that are out there. And then they're able to make their decisions and move forward and think about how do I be, get how do I become a person who engages in socially just practice? Because now they have this background to know that it's not always equitable for all kids in K-12. So I really act as a facilitator. I don't, I provide them with information and we try to look at the other side and say, why is this happening? What do you think is the issue? But we first start talking about the racist taboo and I get them to think about, we gotta talk about race in here and not be afraid of it. Um, and so really what I'm trying to get them to do is to be culturally competent, but also how to engage in culturally responsive practices and also how to engage in those difficult um, conversations. But here's what they tell me. They say, you gave me the language to be able to do this. And that's why I think it's so important that teachers talk with each other about it so they have the language to be able to address this. And so many of them would go home and talk to their families and they talk about, let me tell you what I learned. Um, and sometimes the families were a little skeptical, but they also said I had the language to approach these conversations, which I didn't have before. And I think that's the other important piece for teachers to be able to start to talk about this. They have to have the language to be able to engage in it. And so as a result, you have to have resources. You have to have your own conversations before you engage in it. Yeah, you know, individually we do. We need to build up every person because, uh, you know, people talk about, um, you know, the, the system and that mm -hmm. the people are the system. Yes. <laughs> right. There, there are these, these structures and frameworks and, and, and things, but they're made up of people that are people. interacting in all these roles and doing all of these these things and you know it it's one thing to build up the skills but mm -hmm. it's, it's almost another thing that if you if you're serious as an organization yes about their diversity equity and inclusion um that you in a way um not not only just give permission 
like mm-hmm. openly to everyone and, and, and mm-hmm. let everyone know that this is this is what we are really about and that these conversations are going to take place and that you know we're going to communicate with people but if you ever want to know more we're happy to have you in mm-hmm. but it like it's it's really almost giving permission to your teachers to have those conversations and right. that if it does go you know, outside of where you were trying to go and, and problems yeah. arise that we'll work on it together in a, in a yeah. transparent way. And that, you know, we'll have your back because w- without that people that feel comfortable will probably do it. People that don't will probably yeah. still shy away. And, yeah. you know, I, I think you and I have talked, talked before about that. You know, I, I have a, a good friend that does, does equity work and he's, he's always saying, you know, um, there's, there's real, real work, and then there's performative and there, yeah. there's people who, who want to use the, the words and, and want to say, you know, Hey, we, our organization cares about this, but they're not willing to talk about systemic racism and all right. that, you know, and I, I think that's a good transition for us about, you know, how do we, how do we help our adults? It's one thing mm-hmm. for us to support teachers in having these conversations. How do we help have these conversations internally and, and create, these type of organizations that we want to be, that we strive to be? You know, we need to learn to listen to each other and not discount others' experience. But we also need to recognize that people are still afraid to talk about race. And so, (coughs) sorry, the Learning for Justice um, website, I think, has a lot of resources for doing that. I think we also have to be careful that we're not distracted um, by really what's going on now, where we're passing legislation, where we're telling teachers you can't do this. And I, and I find it really fascinating that these are often led um, by white um, folks um, that have not experienced racism, that have not experienced discrimination, have no idea what it's like to walk in the um, shoes of black and brown and um, Native Americans and Asians' um, shoes And yet there seems to be this fear, because if you think about it, we have now made in this this work uh, almost white kids victims like, oh, my God, we we are going to make white kids have to listen to this and feel bad. Here's my guess. Uh, White kids won't feel bad. Um, The other misconception is that nobody's out there teaching critical race theory. Teachers are not going into the classroom saying we are going to teach CRT. It's a conceptual framework. It's an, epistemo- it's an epistemology. It's something that's really in the ivory tower. And I wanna read this quote because it's out of the Atlantic and I think it's great. And it says, as with other academic frameworks before it, the nuances of critical race theory and the debate around it were obscure when it escaped the ivory tower. And I think that's important. This was an ivory tower. This was a university college concept that is now invaded. And so it's incorrect information that's being put out there. And so again, I would say, what are we fearful of? And so we need to have a conversation about this. And in fact, I, um, as a state school school board member, somebody came forward talking about critical race theory and it's probably the 15th um, presentation. And somebody had just started studying. And I said to him, I've heard people say that black children will be victimized by doing critical race theory. I've heard people say about the indoctrination. I said, so what I want to know is where is the research that shows that teaching critical race theory does those things? And he couldn't produce it. 
And I said, so I want you to quit saying these things because you have no data or research to back up. And I think that's the important thing to know here. People are spouting things that there is no research or data to back it up. Um, <clears throat> and so we have to, we have to talk about it. Um, the other thing you said, I think what I often hear is people make up systems. There's no systemic racism. People do this. Well, people do it because they're a part of a system. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what we have to understand is that the way the system is designed, and maybe it's by accident, maybe that was not their initial intention, but we have to look at that system and then we have to look at people that perpetuate that system. And so those are hard conversations which we don't wanna have, but that are really necessary to have. Um, so I think, you know, if, if, if when we're looking at organization, when we're looking at schools, I still look at the whole child and how do we prepare our young people for a country that is amazing, that is still trying to live up to its ideals. But we also have to recognize it has its flaws. Right. It's okay to say it has its flaws, but recognize that those flaws also impact people on a very personal level today. And how do we make sure we're not complicit in that? And how do we make sure that we understand these things? And how do we make sure that we're going forward, engaging in culturally responsive practices and looking at socially just practices. I want to just do, um, I, I want to give a definition. There's a lot of definitions about culturally responsive practices, but this is a broad one. They're essentially involved recognizing and incorporating the assets and strength all students, notice all students bring into the classroom and ensuring that learning experiences from curriculum through assessment are relevant to all students. So culturally responsive teaching is about using students' cultural experiences and daily instruction, embracing native language and students' families as assets, because we often come from a deficit model. How do we stop doing that? Creating a classroom environment that represents and respects all students and communicating clear, high expectations to everyone. You know, that, you know, and it can be much broader than that. So when I think about school psychology, how do we as school psychologists engage in culturally responsive practices? And that's about understanding assessments and understanding how um, they may be um, uh, biased against students and, you know, not only minoritized students, but even poor students that don't have those um, skills. So we have to all think about what does it mean to be have culturally responsive practices or socially just practices. And I think for me, it's about recognizing all students in our classroom, understanding that they have assets and strengths and thinking about how do we bring that out in the classroom to honor them so that they have a sense of belonging in that classroom. That to me is the important thing. No, I, I'm with you 100%. And I really think that um, some, something that, that stood out to me, I, I just recently took a, a course for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion for a certificate from, it was through the University of South Florida. They offered this uh, for free. And um, it, it was from a more of a corporate standpoint, you know, it was sponsored by an international engineering firm. They were really, you know, thinking of it from the business standpoint of this is good for your bottom line. You know, you'll, you'll have less attrition rates and right. you know, all, all of this stuff, which I, I didn't necessarily like, but they, they did come up with some, some really strong, like, things that you can do if you are serious about being this type of organization. And 
you know, like one thing that stood out to me was for uh, like, you know, people with disabilities. So it, mm-hmm. it was saying in your hiring practices, for one thing, be aware of things that don't even matter, like the ability to lift 40 pounds. I don't yeah. ever lift 40 pounds at my job ever. Yeah. So you're excluding people by putting something like that and everyone does it. But even going a step further and saying, you know, in your posting, we encourage people with disabilities to apply. And, yeah. and I think it, it's little things that you can do in your organization to signal to people within and people yeah. without that you're yeah. serious and this is what you're you're really about. So, you know, in your vision and mission, making, yeah. making sure that these things are in there as, as a school district. Um, you know, in your hiring practices, you know, we uh, value a diverse <laughs> workforce and encourage you know, LGBTQ people of color, uh, like what are people with disabilities to apply, things like that. But but then, uh, you know, even within to to develop and intentionally teach people uh, how to have these conversations with each other, because I, I yeah. think, you know, being being a white person and, you know, trying to be an ally and, mm-hmm. and trying to do certain things, there are times when it feels kind of perilous where you're thinking, you know, I would, I would like to start having this conversation, but what happens if it gets to the point where someone says something that's not true and, and then what if it gets heated and, and, you know, Uh a lot of times your gut reaction is, Oh, wow. I, you know, maybe I just don't have this conversation and I'll, I'll talk to someone else later. But I, I think if we can, if we can establish, you know, these these rules and um, policies and things that that outline, you know, what one of the companies that that presented during my training was was really were really great, where they said we would never discriminate against anyone's religion, against their personal beliefs, against any of these things. What you believe is what you believe, but while you're here, we respect all people and listen to all voices. Yeah. And and so what it what it did was it didn't it didn't take people who maybe are having a hard time with diversity, equity, inclusion and, mm-hmm. and exclude them. Right. But it said there there are rules for how we engage with each other here at this workplace. And I think, yeah. you know, the more we can do that, the more we can be intentional in our organizations. It gets us away from that performative equity yeah. And and down to really actually try, attempting to be equitable. It's never going to be yeah. perfect, but no. you know, doing our best. Yeah, as a person that's been doing diversity for just years, you know, to see what has happened in the last six months, and to see people come out, and to see people say, "I want to know how can I be an ally? How can I help?" And I think it's the next generation. I think it's that next generation that will think differently about about some of these things. I think it's this, um, I think this, in, in part of it, let's let's call it out. There is a fear of a certain group of people that are afraid of losing power. Right. I mean, we like don't want to talk about that. But me, having done diversity work for so many years, I think there's this element of power. And so what we do is we do fear mongering. We talk about divisiveness. We use these things because then that sort of wraps people in. So what happens? you get distracted from the real work that needs to be done out there. I also wanted to say that I loved your uh, example of the disability because I have a son that's spastic quad, cerebral palsy, he's 27. Um, and, but fortunately he has language. 
And, um, and so one of the things is about what you're talking about is what they call carving out a job for things they can do. And he works at Head Start three days a week and they carved out this position for him. And I remember I went to the teachers because um, this, this one classroom they wanted, they said, yes, we want to take him. And so how did uh, Head Start sort of deal with it? They pay the teachers a little bit extra money. Why? Because he, he cannot feed himself. That, so, and so, again, that's something they didn't think about. Um, he got his two-year uh, certificate. But one of the things I asked the teachers, I said, help me understand why you agreed to have him as part of the classroom. And she said, because our kids need to understand that there are people with disabilities in the world and they can, they can work and be friends. And it's absolutely adorable to see these three, four and five-year-olds when he's leaving to calling Mr. Jimmy to hug his wheelchair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but also give credit to the teachers about how they have engaged him to be a part of this classroom. He absolutely loves this job. And so, but I'm grateful to the um, director who said, we're gonna carve out a position for him. And that's what you need with disabilities is for kids. And so I know there are many parents, many teachers who are parents of children with disabilities that says, if a job could just carve out um, a position then they can make it. So some people would say he's an assistant teacher. And I say, yeah, but, you know, he can talk. The kids um, understand him. It's sort of amazing that they do. And the teachers love having him around. And so right. um, now he's been there two and a half years. Um, he feels like he has purpose. Um, and so, again, that's another group we don't talk about as much. But that's one that's also very real in terms of how do we provide equitable opportunities for people with disabilities. Right. And, and I think what you said was really important as well is it, it's not some sort of charity case or handout. It's a right. net benefit to them, the yes. organization, the kids, everyone is, is participating and everyone is benefiting, which is what we really want to get to yeah. with, with the equity conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, knowing that I, I will kind of also say another thing, one of the things I have my students do in the diversity classes to interview somebody from a different cultural group. And a lot of times they'll go back to somebody in high school that was their best friend and they start interviewing them. And they often talk about how shocked they are because here's the thing. They only learned the surface culture. They didn't learn the deep culture. They were never in their house. So they learned that they eat different kinds of foods. They learned that sometimes they felt uncomfortable because their food that they ate was different than what other American kids ate. They learn about um, some of the challenges of being from a different culture. And the students say, I had no idea. They had no idea because we didn't engage in conversations. Um, so yeah, there was a lot that, that the, their friend was like them, but there were also a lot of things. And oftentimes their friends said, thank you. Thank you for talking to me about my culture and letting me share that with you. Yeah. To remember those differences are not deficits. They're amazing. That's what makes this country so wonderful. And we don't even realize all the things we've adopted from all these other cultures, you know? I mean, our number one condiment is not ketchup, it's salsa. Right. So, you know, we don't even realize that. So I, I just hope that people will open their minds to learning and not be afraid because that's what this is. It's fear-mongering. Um, and I hope that people will think about what is the best interest of my kids and what can I learn from each other? No, definitely. It's, it's just tuning out the distractions and 
and engaging and empowering with the, the people in your organization to to understand this work and to mm-hmm. be able to to navigate it. So I, I know that you've got we talked about this uh, last time we talked, but I know you have a summer institute coming up. Yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about that. We are so excited about this. We have 60 um, different sessions. Um, I'll give you a little bit more about it. Um, in session enrollment will go live this week. I've sent you that link. We have around 60 unique um, offerings uh, that cover all sorts of things. Um, there's a wide range of contact out, out, um, hours offered. And the sessions are available from $30 to $450. So it's very economical in terms of doing that. You can sign up for one three hours for one three hour CEU, or you can even sign up for a whole class. Um, some of them are in theme, so you can do a whole theme around some other areas, or you can pick and choose. So we're very excited. Everything is virtual, so you don't have to, you can do it in your backyard. You can do it in your living room. You don't have to go anywhere. And so I, I am very excited about this because it's open to all teachers in the state of Ohio, as well as other ones. So um, I hope people will take advantage of this. There are just really some amazing people that are leading these, um, these sessions. I'm doing two. So I'm doing one on uh, social emotional learning. And I'm also doing one around um, Black Girl Magic, um, helping Black girls strive and thrive in the educational system so that they can be academically successful. So um, I hope people will um, check it out. Uh, I've already checked out the website and the sessions are there and live and ready for people to sign up. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what's, what's that website that address that you That have? website is HTTPS semicolon, um, backslash, backslash, summer institute, one word, dot E-H-E dot O-S-U dot E-D-U backslash. Perfect. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that as well. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, every one of those topics are part of my work near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to get in there and uh, attend that as well myself. Um, you know, anything else you'd like to talk about before you go? Um, the only thing I will add is that this was a new book in my diversity class. Um, people had really recommended it is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Embron Kendi. I would suggest if people want um, that uh, as uh, some summer reading, that would be great. Another, uh, and then I think there's another book that I've recently heard about that I plan to get and this The Sum of Us. Um, I was hoping for it was in paperback. I like paperback books, but I see that it's only in hardback, but it's through Amazon and it's still pretty inexpensive for hardcover, $17.98, but it's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It is new. It's February 16, 2021, so it's hot off the press. Um, So I'm looking forward to reading that. It's by Heather McGee. And so I think that may be a good one. Um, So yeah. Um, I think it's, I love the title. So I think there'll be some good things in there. Awesome. If people like to know more about you and the work that you do at uh, the Ohio State University, uh, how should they get a hold of you? Um, my email, Miranda.2 at osu.edu. But unfortunately, I don't know what my website address is. But if you put me in there, it can go to my website that's not quite updated, but um, there is a lot of things there, but if people want to know more, feel free to email me and I would be happy to uh, send you information that you want to address any of your other concerns. So yeah, Miranda.2 at OSU.edu. 
That's great. Well, that wraps up our discussion for today. Once again, I'd like to thank our special guest, Dr. Antoinette Miranda. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Miranda's upcoming event and our other professional development opportunities, you can check out our website. It's at sst11.org or SST11 Facebook page or on Twitter at SSTregion11. If you'd like to reach me, you can send me an email. I'm at eric.neal at esc.org. Until next time, I'm Eric Neal. Thanks for listening.